Hello and welcome to Startup Europe, the Sifted podcast, supported by Zendesk for Startups. I'm Amy, Sifted's editor. And I'm Eleanor, Sifted's deputy editor. And in case you haven't heard of Sifted before, we report on Europe's tech and startup sector. And on this podcast, we have a look inside the Sifted newsroom and talk about the most interesting articles that our journalists have been working on during the week. This week, we're going to hear about how payments company Checkout.com has lost its place on the throne as Europe's most valuable tech company. And we're going to hear about a startup that we've discussed recently on the podcast and how they've raised $20 million to tackle the world's biodiversity crisis. This is a super cool startup. I'm very excited about this. And then we're going to quickly break down the final terms, and by final we actually really mean final, of that much-discussed buyout deal as speedy grocery delivery Gautier has finally acquired Gorillas. And we'll also be joined by our Nordics reporter Mimi Billing to talk about the futuristic technology of all-in-one body scanners that can diagnose illness. And we'll speak to Joseph Williams, co-founder of inclusive recruitment platform Clue, about his experiences of trying to raise funding for his company as a disabled person. So let's move into the biggest story about European tech this week. Another casualty of the economic downturn. This week, we got the news reported by the Financial Times that payment provider Checkout.com has had its valuation slashed from $40 billion to $11 billion. That makes digital neobank Revolut, Europe's new most valuable startup, at $33 billion. And I think a lot of people often find just how these valuations are figured out and what makes them go up and go down a bit confusing. So this week we actually published a piece digging into how valuations are calculated. So Eleanor, this new checkout valuation, the $11 billion figure number, is an internal valuation. What exactly does that mean? Yeah, so this means that it was a valuation that's calculated outside of a new funding round. Usually valuations at startups are decided when they raise new capital because they need to decide with the investors how much the business is worth so they can decide how much the stake that the investors are going to invest in the company and the ownership stake that the company is going to give to those investors is worth. But this time it was actually something that they decided internally. It's also interesting that the CEO and founder, Guillaume Pouzaz, cited November, which was the same month that this internal valuation change was decided, that he doesn't actually care about the valuation of the company. I mean, you would do if you knew you might be needing to see it go down soon. And what about Revolut? Revolut valued at $33 billion, now the most valuable startup on paper in Europe with checkout and Klarna having gone down, down, down. Do we think its valuation makes sense? Well, I mean, we can look at it in a couple of ways. First, Revolut has one thing, or so CEO Nick Stronsky has said that it has one thing that many investors are looking for, which is profitability. He has said many times this year that the Neobank is going to hit profitability in its annual results, which will be released sometime this month. And Investors in the current economic slowdown are definitely looking a lot more closely for that profitability stuff. I would say one of the hallmarks of kind of the way overcapitalization of tech companies has been how their valuations have been so out of step with their comparables on the public markets. So if you just look at incumbent rivals that are listed, right, like Lloyds Bank, Barclays, and NetWest, Lloyds has a 31 billion pound market cap, Barclays has a 25 billion pound market cap, and NetWest has a 30 billion pound market cap. So you could definitely have a conversation and a debate over whether 
Revolut is worth more than these companies that have offices all over the world, have been around for a very long time and have millions and millions of customers. So we know that especially in the early stage of a company, it really is all about the people. You know, there isn't really much of a business to go on. Companies are very much pre-revenue. So investors are looking at stuff like what kind of businesses people have worked in or built before, their backgrounds, whether they have any particular expertise in the business. But when you get to the bigger rounds, when you get to Series A, Series B, Series C, you know, businesses do actually have numbers and which are the ones that really matter to investors when they're valuing businesses yeah so obviously when you get a company that's beyond like series a you start to actually be able to put together a numeric picture of how their business is doing right they probably have customers they're selling a product so you have lots of data that you could look at right and so some of the things that investors are going to look at when they judge these later stage companies so like series a plus they're going to look at you know Revenue, how fast revenue is growing. They're going to look at things like churn of customers, right? So how long do customers actually stay with the company before they leave? And then they're going to look at other things like margins, you know, how much bang for their buck are they actually getting? And I think generally we're seeing more of a reevaluation of how many companies are valued. And as things have kind of slowed down, investors are taking a lot more time with evaluating companies. They're actually doing their due diligence of digging into some of these numbers and thinking, questioning, should this really be worth this much? So keep a close eye on the Sifted website over the next few weeks as we eagerly anticipate Revolut's financial results and we see whether it really is going to hit profitability soon. I mean, don't try and fight Nick Stronsky, man. We'll fight you. Okay, so moving on, we're now going to talk about a story which is very important for our planet and this week is getting attention at the highest level of global politics. In Montreal, in Canada, leaders are meeting to discuss how to address the world's biodiversity crisis at the COP biodiversity conference COP15 and it's not just politicians who are paying attention to the problem lots of tech companies are as well so we spoke about Basecamp with our climate tech reporter Freya a couple of weeks ago on the pod but this week the London-based startup has announced it's raised 20 million dollars to scale its biodiversity technology it got coverage in the Wall Street Journal so Eleanor tell us what has it been doing that's got investors and the media so interested Yeah, so Basecamp Research is a biotech firm, tech bio, bio 2.0, whatever you want to call it. Part of these, this new generation of companies that are creating tech scalable products using biology. And they design protein products based on proteins that are found in natural diversity. In case you don't know, protein engineering is super important in everything from medicines to creating dairy-free milk to even actually making PCR tests. The thing is that we actually only know about a very limited number of proteins. Less than 1% of the biochemistries in nature have been discovered, um, is what Oliver Vince, who is the co-founder of Basecamp, says. And in reality, there are actually millions of proteins that occur in nature. And if we actually could map more of those, we could probably find some really helpful ones to help make new pharmaceuticals, new materials, right, help us in terms of agriculture and crops, and even more nutritious foods. 
Yeah, and I just love the sound of this startup because its job sounds infinitely more exciting than lots of SaaS or whatever startups out there. Its team go on expeditions around the world. They've been to apparently 40 places so far from Antarctica to the Azores to take samples and track the proteins that naturally occur in those places and then the tech part of this is that it's using AI to build a database which shows the characteristics of the proteins it's found and predicts the qualities that occur in other proteins in other areas of the world that are yet to be found. Then companies pay Basecamp to search its database and find proteins that can do a better job than the ones they're currently using. So for example, it worked with a pharmaceutical company that wanted to manufacture a chemical at scale, had done five rounds of trials, couldn't find an enzyme sequence that worked, and then Basecamp used its database to identify a successful enzyme within a week. Yeah, and then the other interesting thing about Basecamp's model is that it gives some of the profits of these of its business back to the country in which the protein was discovered, which should mean that countries will be incentivized to protect their natural biodiversity because doing so becomes money maker. I think more generally, we're seeing a lot of interest in proteins and bioengineering right now in the tech world. I'm sure everyone saw when DeepMind came out with AlphaFold, which helped them map the way that all of these proteins fold using AI. And that's been a huge game changer. So super excited to see more stuff coming out of this space soon. Yeah. And then on to very quickly, get this over and done with a technology that perhaps the world does not need. Getir has finally bought Gorillas. This long ongoing saga of the speedy grocery companies is done. Late last week, it was announced that it's finally over. We yep. don't have to write about this anymore. Yep. And the terms were slightly different, were they, Eleanor, from what we were originally hearing? Yeah, so actually it, it ended up that Gorillas investors received some Gatir stock, so their kind of stake in Gorillas converted to stake in Gatir. But then they also got $40 million in cash, and what we had previously reported and what we understood to be under negotiation was an equity-only deal. Um, so they actually would have only gotten a stake in Gatir and nothing out of um, in terms of cash. Yeah, and so now the combined entity, the two companies together, is valued at $10 billion, Getir being valued at $8.8 billion and Gorillas at $1.2 billion, which is a lot lower than their previous valuations. But interestingly, as we were talking about with the banks earlier, it still makes them way more valuable as a combined entity than pretty much all high street supermarkets, just to put this into a bit of perspective. And I just want to shout out to that hilarious LinkedIn thread about this. I'm glad that you've brought this up. Yeah, and that we're going to be uh, picking up in our VC investment-focused newsletter on Friday called Upround. So please subscribe to Upround if you want to hear about this very juicy LinkedIn battle that took place that even Khan Sumer, who was the founder of Gorillas, got involved with in the comment thread. (laughs) Yeah, if you're a bit confused... To speedily summarise, but you should check out the newsletter, an investor posted on LinkedIn that he thought that the payout that Consumer, the CEO, will have got from this deal, the company being valued at $1.2 billion, was probably a lousy management bonus of a couple of millions. And obviously, some of the people of LinkedIn don't think that a couple of million dollars is quite such a lousy bonus. This podcast is brought to you by Zendesk for Startups. 
Zendesk helps startups build lasting customer experiences from day one. With the Zendesk for Startups program, startups get Zendesk customer support software and CRM for six months free of charge. You'll get access to expert advice and a community of like-minded founders and CX leaders to help you build the foundation for long-term growth. Learn more and claim your six months free at zendesk.com sifted. Now we're joined by our reporter Mimi Billing in Stockholm. This week, she's been looking into some potentially exciting new technology in the world of healthcare. This is something that we actually touched on in a previous podcast when Mimi uncovered the fact that Spotify's founder, Daniel Ek, is working on a new health tech startup. And when she went to the clinic that that company is running, she discovered a curious shaped piece of equipment all boxed up. Mimi, tell us what that piece of equipment was and how this inspired you to write this new piece. Well, I mean, I didn't know at the time. It just looked like some kind of arc. And I I guess after I've spoken to quite a lot of sources, I found out that it was a diagnostic tool for a whole like body scanner, similar to an airport security scanner in some way. And that was very exciting, obviously. And then I found out that actually through documents, legal documents, I found out that one shareholder or one small owner of AGN, as the startup's called, was this UK startup working on diagnostics called Spectroma. So I did call them up to ask them what they were doing and why they were, you know, owners or small owners in Daniel Eck's startup. Amazing. And so I love these times when you kind of call someone up and they're like, oh, a journalist, this sounds great. I'll, I'll chat to you. Um, and it seems like the founder of Spectromo was pretty chatty. What did he tell you about what they're building? And then kind of how can we extrapolate about that to what Daniel X startup might be building? Yeah, I mean, wow. I, 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 would, I don't want to go into too much details because it's so difficult, right? But it's like microwave kind of diagnostic imaging. I mean, so they take images really of... I mean, right now, or like butternut squash and melons and see that it looks the same on the inside as it does on the outside. I mean, like, so you can understand, like, they compare the two. And then they're obviously planning to take this into humans, but by next year, I believe. So David Herbada, the executive director of Spectroma, he was telling me that if you use this kind of imaging, you can, for example, detect a fatty liver. So instead of doing like a biopsy, which is like a, a really long needle that you stick through your stomach to get to the liver to get like a sample, you can actually get the size of it and see that it's a fatty liver by taking a blood test and then taking an image that is not an MRI or a CT scan, but while well, it's not actually harming you in any way, it doesn't cost as much. That was one of the things that the founder was talking to about the fact that it's actually this technology that would use these microwaves would be safer for use multiple times as compared to a CT scan or an MRI, right? Yeah, so it would be less than a mobile phone. And we obviously use mobile phones all the time. Less than a mobile phone in terms of radiation or power? Yeah, Yeah, in radiation and power. But um, so you can actually do it as many times as you like, take these images. And I think that was... What he was saying, Herbada, was that what he wants to see is that we take this kind of images of ourselves like all the time. A little bit of how we use, for example, like an aura ring or a smartwatch or a Garmin or Fitbit or whatever, uh, just to be able to see if there are any changes, because those changes might be 
telling us that we have actually some kind of disease or something. So it would be used in a preventative method as well as actually helping out with the diagnostics of already, you know, tumors or fatty livers or whatever. And I thought it was super cool. The other company that you talked to that's trying to build an all-in-one diagnostics, non-invasive diagnostics solution was also talking about bringing their solution to the office. And it even looked a little bit like something that we might see in the office, aka like a call booth or a podcast booth. Yeah. Tell me about this company. Yeah, maybe you could actually put like some podcast uh, uh, equipment in that. You can actually use it both. But uh, it's it's called Medicube X and it's a Finnish startup that has only been around for like a few years. And what they're doing, they build this kind of cube or, you know, like a booth that you can walk into and you can take like your blood pressure, you can uh, take, I mean, all the kind of things that you would ask a nurse to take from you except blood or the non-invasive ones when you go to a primary care unit or facility that you would actually, you know, maybe even take your weight, but also it has some kind of new technology that you can actually see your glucose levels through a skin test and so on. So it's actually trying to bring more of these things in. But what they are doing, they are also, they're putting them into primary care uh, facilities next year. But then they do see that they could actually put them into big offices. Because again, you know, as a SaaS model, they could then, employees could then use this to check up that they are well and good because i mean in some countries like in finland and france for example employers are actually responsible for the employee's health so in that way it's it makes sense maybe not i mean maybe it wouldn't be a big thing here in sweden or in the uk as a first start but it would maybe be interesting for these big employers in those other countries Definitely. I remember when I lived and worked in Japan, once a year, we all had to get a medical checkup and we went to this like clinic and we all had to go through just a series of medical devices where you'd step into different boxes and stuff that would measure all these things about you. And then you got a report at the end. Um, so it'd be really cool maybe to just combine that all into one box. Yeah. But investors see a lot of potential here, Mimi, and also some like risks and challenges. Talk me through what those, like, what are the great outcomes that could potentially come from this and then also the risks, challenges. Yeah, I mean, diagnostics is obviously one of those things that VCs are interested in because as we see now, we are not very preventative in our diagnostics and we, you know, to have this kind of tool that could actually, or toolbox or something, that could actually measure so many different things and give us that kind of easy access to that information that would obviously be really, really good and also great investments for VCs. So I spoke to this investor, Molly Gilmartin at Albion VC. And I mean, she was saying that this could actually become like the next European unicorn in health tech if they manage to. However, obviously there's always that one, however, the problem with kind of diagnostics is that you need clinical validation. And if you consider like clinical validations for one problem, like oncology or whatever, fatty liver even. I mean, that would be hard. But if you get it for all those kind of different diseases or treatments or whatever, I mean, that's much more difficult. So that's one of the kind of howevers. And then also, I mean, as people have been, I, I shared this piece on LinkedIn and so many people saying the same things over and over again. Like the problem with these kind of things also about, you know, maybe like a positive false so that you can actually see that we are so different from 
person to person so different. So maybe by using these diagnostics devices, we'll actually see things that are could be seen as a problematic area, which isn't. So you would actually go through a lot more healthcare than you would actually have to. And also that, you know, by seeing all these things, I mean, you have to really know what you're doing. You have to really clinically validate it. And uh, I mean, that's obviously a huge but. So we'll see where they get to. But I still think, you know, very exciting and like incredible potential. Also, given the fact that we are low on medical staff and medical staff are overstretched in so many countries around the world. And so the ability to just kind of offload some of that work from them is is very exciting. But Mimi, maybe we can end with one kind of bit of color about the reporting for this piece. Um, when you reached out to Daniel X team for HJN about the piece and what you were going to write, they were a little bit touchy. Yeah, me. I mean, because I, when we write about companies, we, we like to obviously reach out. So I did tell them that I spoke to Spectroma about the collaboration. And I mean, in an email, and he, this spokesperson for the company called me up two minutes later and said like, well, actually, we don't have any current collaboration and we will not probably have any collaboration in the future with Spectroma. And I was like, okay, that's funny. So why do they own shares in this company? And he was like, well, I can't tell you that. Okay. So, but while I was on the phone to him, I got a text message from David Herbada at Spectroma saying exactly the same thing. And I was like, wow, they were, I mean, this is not obviously, this was AGN calling up Spectroma at the same time as I was almost talking to them because it's like, you should not talk about our company, that kind of stuff. Uh, so, I don't know, they were not too happy, uh, Herbada said. Uh. <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, I guess that is just being doing a really good job at being at stealth in stealth. Anyway, thank you, Mimi. A really a super fascinating topic. And I'm looking forward to the day when you'll be able to actually use Daniel X device. <laughs> Me too. Thank you. Finally, we're joined by Joseph Williams, co-founder of inclusive recruitment platform Clue to talk about an issue that is very under discussed in the tech world. That is the challenges and obstacles for founders who live and work with disabilities, which, as we will hear from him, are very considerable challenges. It's worth stating that here in the UK, and these are numbers that map probably similar to other countries, a quarter of small business owners are disabled, according to the Federation of Small Businesses in the UK, and around 21% of people of working age are thought to live with a disability. So basically, people with disabilities are good at running businesses, but Joseph, that often means succeeding against the odds. I know you're living with autism and a chronic condition that impairs your mobility. Tell us a little bit about how that's affected you as an entrepreneur, and also thank you so much for joining us today. And, and thank you so much for creating the space for us to start sharing, sharing our, our stories as well and our successes. So we as a community of people living with either physical, sensory, chronic health, mental health, neurological conditions, just to exist, need to problem solve and innovate on a daily basis just to just to get from, you know, the flat to the train to the to the to the building to the store. And so at a deep and instinctive level we are creative problem solvers. We are innovators. We are communicators. We know how to get past ourselves to get things done. 
And so many of these qualities are intrinsic in what I have learned on my entrepreneurial journey to be the actual thing that is most important in underpinning success. That being said, that is within the ecosystem of your own business. When you then start, as we are now in the phase of kind of seeking funding, you know, we are uh, an, an AI led um, technology company for all intents and purposes. And so um, <clears throat> we've got good customer traction. So we go to an investor and we'll say, hey, you know, we would love your money. And they're like, oh, fantastic. Yes. Looks like you you would be a good investment. Come along to our office. Um, and then when I get to the office, I can't get into the office because it's just got step access. Or as another um, friend and one of our kind of um, access to funding kind of stories, um, he he, he had loads of investor interest, but then said, hey, I need an induction loop, which is basically a hearing aid um, compatibility system that you can install in a building um, in order to hear you um, in the conversation, in the the conversation we're going to have. Like, no, no response um, from, from investors from those points. We... We are faced with an entire environment that is kind of at the very furthest away point of needing to change and feeling kind of inspired to change. We've seen just how quickly change is possible and change can happen, as we've seen with the likes of the uh, follow on effect of um, the chronic misrepresentation of black founders um, that has been brought to highlight in recent years. But because there are infrastructural implications and the assumption is that this is massively expensive, disabled people are often left out of the underrepresented um, grouping and therefore our voices aren't heard and therefore our needs aren't met. Totally. And we're not talking about charity cases here, right? We're talking about incredible businesses that are super like high performing, right? And I thought it was so interesting. You took part in some research that showed just how big the opportunity that investors are losing out on here. Tell me a little bit about that. 100%. So access to funding um, uh, is a kind of a collaboration of um, frustration um, by ourselves, um, the Celia Hensman, the co-founder, the campaign's co-founder at the Disability Policy Centre, um, Cameron Malik at Disability Rights UK, and a few other businesses that are focused on elevating equity, social equity, amongst uh, entrepreneurs and, and uh, business owners. When we set up access to funding, we knew that as a group, we were facing a system that was not ready to offer us no pun intended equity but as we've kind of worked out further what people what kind of funding people have been looking for when you pair that against the average kind of returns that you can expect and success rates that you get through raising we found that approximately 500 million a year is being left on the table and particularly in a time when mobilizing micro economies is vital to sustaining growth and kind of mitigating the risk of recession it's so important that the excellence that is celebrated in other minority groups, other underrepresented and underutilized and underestimated groups is equally awarded to to disabled and neurodiverse founders. Totally. So kind of stepping back again, what's kind of your message to people about why they should take notice of this gap, you know, about the fact that uh, founders with disabilities have been underinvested in the past, right? And, and haven't had the support that they could have had, right? And what should investors be doing? Yeah, so on, on a personal note, I regularly have to come out as a gay man, you know, several times a week when I meet people. I also have to come out from, from an autistic perspective. Um, I also have to come out from a physical uh, health perspective. 
And, you know, that whole experience is quite tiring because we're so focused on demographics through fear of being seen to do nothing. You can't treat disabled communities in the same way as you can do with gender. There is commonality amongst gender diversity. There is commonality amongst black communities, amongst Asian communities. There is literally no commonality outside of inaccessibility between someone that is to say has a sensory disability or someone that has a physical disability. It's very difficult to treat everyone the same. And so we need to get away from the banding, but actually just start adopting things from a place of what does this process look like if it were truly accessible? We are helping investors do that across three verticals with the campaign, with the access to funding campaign. So improving language and communication um, uh, tools, improving experience. So the actual, particularly from a digital perspective, improving that experience, um, Eleanor, across the entire deal cycle and the deal flow to reach a really solid baseline on their on their accessibility. We have an ongoing survey with access to funding where we are desperately trying to connect with as many disabled business owners as possible. We know there are hundreds, thousands of us out there. We're just not very good at putting ourselves together in this in the same way that other communities are. So that campaign is live um, and um, we're always looking for more people to be involved with that and ultimately helping us spread the word. You, as, as you've mentioned, there is a chronic underrepresentation um, around um, disabled communities. You may have seen recently Amazon released its underrepresented founders fund and listed literally every demographic except disabled people. We are not seen as excellent. We are not seen as talented. We are not seen as valuable. However, history says we are. Current state says we are. And we're just trying to elevate uh, the opportunities that are available to us. I thought it was really beautiful when you came on and you started talking that you said we're here today to talk about those challenges, but also successes. And so I just want to end with asking you about what is one of your recent successes so that we can celebrate that here. Hi they. Um, that's so sweet. I mean, having the access to funding research um, cited in Atomico's state of um, European tech report was pretty phenomenal. I mean, seeing disabled people being profiled, our experience and the significant challenges um, being highlighted in such a prestigious report was a real grounding moment. And obviously massive call out to Celia Hensman and the Disability Policies Policy Centre on pulling together this report and, and, and the data side of it. It's, um, we are changing a system, both at Clue and both um, through access to funding and seeing that being picked up in spaces that do not normally notice us feels right. That's super powerful. Thank you so much for sharing all of this with us, Joseph. Thank you very much for having us and for creating space, Elena, Tim and Sifted. Thank you. And that is all we have time for. If you want to hear more about what's unfolding in the world of European tech and startups, please check out all our coverage on sifted.eu. You can also find all the articles mentioned in the episode in the pod description. And please follow us on Twitter if you're still on Twitter, um, or sign up to our newsletters. I mentioned uh, the newsletter that Amy and I write called Upround, which you can find on the website under the little newsletter section. It's all about VC and investment in Europe, so definitely check that out. Um, And let us know what you think of the podcast 
on Twitter, the bird site, or email us at hello at sifter.eu. And if you want to be doing a bit of Stockholm investigating yourself and meet Mimi Billing in person, please head to our website, go to the events tab and check out our Sifted Sessions Stockholm, which is our next big in-person event happening on the 8th of March. You can now pre-register for tickets. We would love to see you there. I will also be there as will pod editor Tim. Woohoo. Bye bye. Way to take control of the ending there. (laughs) Just like completely monopolize the ending.